Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. We've reached the middle of the week, Wednesday, the 20th of September. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk, one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong, according to Podstatus. You can find the show on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify by searching for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, which is where you'll find my daily newsletter, which contains a lot more business and finance information from across Asia to go with the show. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the OECD said that central banks shouldn't hold interest rates at their should hold interest rates at their current high levels or raise them further to defeat inflation, despite increasingly visible signs of economic strains and protectionism across the world. The Paris-based organisation said it was necessary to see durable progress in defeating inflation before considering easing monetary policy. The Reserve Bank of Australia said that inflation in the country is too high, but opted to hold its benchmark policy rate at 4.1% in its last meeting. Minutes from the RBA revealed that the board debated between raising rates by 25 basis points or leaving it unchanged, before opting to leave the cash rate on hold for the third straight month. The bank also added that more time should be allowed to see the effects of monetary policy tightening since May 2022. Rising petrol prices pushed Canada's headline inflation rates higher than forecast in August. The consumer price index rose 4% on an annualised basis after rising 3.3% in July, the country's statistics body said. Economists had expected 3.8%, meaning inflation was higher than expected for a second month. Bank of Canada Deputy Governor Sharon Kozicki warned on Tuesday that the central bank was prepared to raise the policy interest rate further if needed. And U.S. Treasury yields rose as the hot Canadian CPI data served as a warning shot over inflation optimism. The yield on benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasuries hit a 16-year high, rising five basis points to 4.37%, surpassing their August highs to take yields to their highest level since November 2007. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Corinne Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. And we're also going to take a look at Vietnam this morning with Rushir Desai of Asia Frontier Capital. U.S. stocks fell on Tuesday in cautious trading ahead of the Federal Reserve's two-day monetary policy meeting. Investors were also keeping a close eye on the rally in oil prices that has threatened to push inflation higher again. The S&P 500 slid 0.2% to 4,444. The Dow lost 107 points, or a third of a percent, to end at 34,518, and the Nasdaq Composite slid 0.2% to 13,678. Brent pushed above $95 per barrel at one stage, following the OPEC Plus supply cuts. Brent crude oil rose 0.8% in Asian trading yesterday to a 10-month high, before repairing gains into the New York settlement to close 0.1% lower at $94.34 a barrel. The US dollar index was unchanged. The Japanese yen tested 148 at one point before closing 0.2% weaker at 147.85. The Chinese yuan slipped 0.1% to 7.297 renminbi versus the dollar in onshore markets. 
Hong Kong stocks recovered from morning losses. The Hang Seng Index stood at 17,997, up 67 points on the day, or 0.4%. And the Tech Index slips 0.1%. The Shanghai Composite was flat at 3,125. Strategists at BlackRock Investment Institute downgraded their view on Chinese equities to neutral from overweight just seven months after turning buyers. They abandoned their bullish view made in February, saying China's property sector remains a drag, even with growth showing signs of stabilising. And the strategists wrote in a report, growth has slowed, policy stimulus is not as large as in the past, structural challenges imply deteriorating long-term growth, while geopolitical risks persist. We see growth on a slower trajectory, they said. And futures markets are pointing to a decline of about 60 points for the Hang Seng at the open. That's about a third of a percent. Should open around 17,940 this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. As we gear up for Fed Day, let's welcome our Wednesday morning guests. We have with us our regular weekly commentator on a Wednesday, Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, Kareen uh, Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group. Welcome back, Kareen. Thank you. Good morning. So this week, the financial landscape heavily in- influenced by the Federal Reserve's interest rate decision, which we're going to get in the early hours of tomorrow morning, Hong Kong time. Traders are assigning a 90 99% chance that the US central bank keeps rates on hold at 5.5%. The Bank of England meets on Thursday. And then in Asia this week, central banks in China, Japan, Taiwan, Thailand, Indonesia, and the Philippines, as well as Hong Kong's de facto central bank, are also going to be deliberating on their monetary policy direction. Um, NCO, I guess uh, the Fed tomorrow, 99% chance that they're going to stay on a hold. But nevertheless, as we've seen from uh, Canada earlier today, um, they can't be too complacent, can they? The risk always seems to be to this could be on the upside of of an inflation shock. It's the risks for all the wrong reasons, Peter. I think that the central banks are operating with a very antediluvian framework, which goes to say that they always think it's demand-pull inflation driven by strong growth. Well, at the same time, everybody's saying that growth is slowing. So how can you have demand-pull inflation coming through when growth is slowing? It doesn't Mm -hmm. work. And so my view is that they're trying to apply knitting needles to a carburetor, and they're not getting anywhere because the knitting needles cannot attack things like sunspots and the politics of oil prices. You just can't, central bank policy isn't going to help. So when we saw in the US the gas prices going up, the Saudis agreeing on, and the Russians on rising oil prices and thus gas prices, the central banks can't do anything about that. They can't do anything about El Nino, La Nina, jet streams, heat domes, things Mm. like that. They can't do anything, but that's where so much of the inflation appears to be stemming from these days, and that I believe will stay. So does this mean then that we're really being held hostage by things like oil price rises, which presumably are going to have an impact on inflation, the war in Ukraine, which is affecting grain prices, and um, you're saying the Fed doesn't have the tools to deal with any of that, so we're really at the mercy of this. 
Well, I think we're at the mercy of very ossified male brain structures that simply refuse to see that things have changed, that we also need to try and incorporate other things like productivity, like education, and things like that that are not going to exactly sort of immediately change inflation policy, but would certainly help it, especially on the productivity front. Mm. I'll jump in here to say that um, one of the things which are definitely having an impact on inflation and will have an impact on inflation is food prices. And you did mention, Peter, the uh, of course, the um, the war in Ukraine, but uh, there we do have uh, as well uh, a climate effect on these food prices. Uh, rice prices are the highest for 15 years, and it's completely correlated to the actual um, uh, issues of having, in some places, uh, too dry weather, in some other places, too wet weather, and these um, weather patterns are directly connected to, uh, as Enzo was saying, the um, El Nino, which is uh, we've just uh, we are entering now as, yes. as, a, as a weather pattern. Yes, and, and presumably governments are also responding to that in some places with protectionist measures, banning imports, uh, exports of rice and other like commodities, India. which is making it worse. But exactly. that's a secondary effect. I think the key, the key one is that, that you can't do a deal with nature, as a smoking specialist once said to me. You just can't do a deal with El Nino, La Nina or politicians' all prices. Mm. So I want to get on to um, climate change in a moment because that's an important topic that's uh, that's obviously going on um, at the moment. Let me just stick with the Fed a little bit because we're, we're, we, there's no point predicting what the Fed's going to do mm. tomorrow. But what will be interesting is we get the dot plots, don't we? We get them every quarter, which tell us what Fed officials think about the direction of interest rates in the future. Now, presumably what's going to be important here is, first of all, where do interest rates peak? Are we going to get another one or two rate rises? So it'll be interesting to see what the Fed policymakers say about that. But also, maybe more importantly, when do they start to come down? Because oh. this is what uh, financial markets seem to be focusing on um, at the moment. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, they peak at six before the election. The, the What I call the wheelchair race starts in America. And they subside once the new president has been elected by the Electoral College. So it's a political thing. It's a very political thing. And I have... And I, we get enough of these calls wrong, but I, one of the few I have been right on was that I, I did say it two years ago already, back in March of 2022, that we would be going more towards the six than the four, but everybody was still yapping on about 4%. I still think that more six, whether it's 5.75 or 6.02, it doesn't matter. But it's, it's still, there's a, still a rise, again, because they're trying to cover up for past mistakes. They don't want to be caught wrong-footed yet again. Mm even though the, the framework, yet again, is antediluvian. Presumably. And so the wheelchair race has got to do with the age of the our young candidates to you the presidential Ms. election. Feinstein, who's 87, and <laughs> yes, and all that kind of stuff, I think, that, and the Supreme Court. Yes, so, so more of the ossified male brain structure, as yeah, you called it. Yeah, death is a growth industry. Yeah, death is a growth industry. Well, Janet is 77, but she's got uh, oh, she's a, a baby. very well-functioning brain. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, Corinne, going back to your point, then mm. presumably the risk uh, to inflation is on the upside because um, you know, that people are underestimating maybe the jump in food prices, also the amount of money that governments are having to spend uh -huh. in com uh, combating climate change. Yes, or, well, combating climate change, both in terms of 
uh, investing into uh, solutions whereby we would be less dependent on fossil fuel, uh, but also investing money into uh, so-called adaptation, i.e. Uh, climate change is upon us. It's been already for quite some time and it's going to be increasing. And uh, we do need to have a lot of money put into uh, making our systems and infrastructures and companies more resilient. I saw recently an interesting data point that if you look at the old climate action investment money, uh, money put into climate action, so to say, 90% uh, is going in, in so-called mitigation, i.e. trying to reduce the, uh, uh, the um, em uh, emissions and, mm. uh, and increase, uh, for instance, carbon six, uh, but only 10% going into adaptation. Now, look at what happened this summer. Um, uh, recently, I mean, both, of course, tragic uh, losses of life in, in, in many places. But if you think in terms of economic destruction, uh, it sounds like the, um, the rainfalls we had in Hong Kong uh, would probably cost at least three billion Hong Kong dollars. Mm -hmm. The wildfires in Europe this summer, uh, four billion euros. Uh, in the US only, we are already reaching a record of uh, the highest number of single incidents which cost more than $1 billion each. And uh, so we are, uh, we've had 22 only year to date in the US. And uh, the total bill right now is like $56 billion. These are big numbers, especially when you consider that a lot of this actually is not insured. So it's going directly, uh, of course, mm, into, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, for, 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 for of course, uh, communities, but also for companies and, and anybody owning assets that have been destroyed. So uh, uh, clearly, um, we this is something that needs to be taken into consideration. However, um, I think one of the other elements to, to discuss, and I'm sure we, we, we maybe would do that today, is in terms of inflation is, of course, what's going on in, in China. And uh, there we have, of course, a completely different um, uh, economic cycle and then uh, with with a slowdown of the Chinese economy but also you know inflation which uh, is it seems to be pretty um, you know zero uh, virtually yeah. exactly yeah. With, with with other issues yes, and concerns related there, to this yeah. I mean, here in Hong Kong, I presume we're going to see more of this type of weather that we've seen in, in recent weeks. Oh, yes, we will. Are we, um, are we prepared? Are we spending enough money uh, to combat this and, uh, and to find, you know, alternative ways of dealing with it? Well, look, um, this is the main problem with uh, climate change and what we call the acute physical climate risk is that these are very difficult to model. They're very difficult to forecast. So it's, it's I don't know, of course, depending on what we mean by being prepared. Well, in a way, of course, Hong Kong itself has, a, I mean, a, has fantastic infrastructure. I mean, look mm. at what happened just two weeks ago mm. was absolutely, I mean, we're talking about record rains we never had so much rain happening so fast and of course we've we've all seen or been uh, involved in in uh, in the um, uh, what happened that that night but uh, there've been very little um, uh, i mean there've been very there've been tragic loss of life but very very little compared to mm. other places where, where 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 yeah, exactly mm. Libya where, and where we've seen and and that's yes. always been as well like the i mean i've also i mean like like you guys have been living in in hong kong and not as long as you have but i've been here now for 10 
10 years, it's, it's quite remarkable how much um, preparation there is. For instance, every time there is a typhoon coming and, and people are actually very careful. So I would say, of course, in that sense, Hong Kong as, as a community is probably one of the best prepared in, in, uh, in, uh, in Asia and then uh, again compared to many other places. But it does not mean that it's going to be an easy ride. It's going to be that we're going to have issues and we're going to be uh, affected for sure because, as, as Ansu was saying, there's nothing we can't deal with nature. I mean, um, yeah. it's always useful to remember that anti that chaos and cosmos are antipodes, and chaos comes from abyss. So you just don't know where these things actually come from at the end of the day. As you say, you cannot model them because they're non linear inter alia. Do you think that uh, institutions like the Fed and other central banks, when they come to thinking about economic policy, when they come to setting monetary policy, should climate change uh, be one of the factors that they now consider? Oh, absolutely. And they actually are doing that. Maybe we, we don't talk enough about it, of course. And, and some people could claim that they're not doing in, they're not taking enough, I mean, the, the, the scope taken into consideration is maybe a bit insufficient, but, you know, there, there are a number of uh, uh, initiatives uh, uh, um, uh, around the world where central banks meet and specifically discuss on, on, on climate and agree on frameworks, like anything with the, in the financial sectors, uh, we start by wanting to to make a proper risk evaluation, so you have framework for assessment of this risk. But then they, uh, they and I know this week, for instance, because we have the, the both the UN uh, General Assembly taking place in New York at the same time as what is called New York Climate Week, which is the largest event on specifically on climate uh, around the world uh, on an annual basis. It's been held since 2009. Um, There's a lot of discussions, uh, and and Janet uh, Yellen had specifically some announcement or or basically. Uh, a speech saying that that the the um, the global financial systems uh, must take climate into consideration much more than they're doing today but it doesn't mean that it's not taking place today but like we've had for instance some uh, there's been a lot of uh, banks doing a, a climate uh, stress test and unfortunately there it's it's i mean it's not looking good because it's one thing to do a stress test but then the result coming out on that uh, were obviously not uh, not very good Mm. The reason why I asked the question is because there seems to be a debate going on at the moment about how much institutions like central banks, like the IMF, like the World Bank should be involved in climate change and should take that in consideration. Now, there's some people particularly on the right of the political spectrum in the US, who say it's nothing to do with the central banks. You know, they should focus on economic policy, monetary policy. And it was interesting that uh, the head of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, said that the IMF is going to stay, to quote her, stay in our lane on climate. And what she said was that uh, the, the multilateral lender is only going to do what we're good at. And then she cited things that we're good at, sound policies for prosperity, growth and employment. Now, I have to say, I find this a bit odd because I would have thought nothing could be more damaging uh, to prosperity, growth and employment than your country potentially sinking below the Pacific Ocean. Um, so I, I find it strange that organisations like the IMF think that they shouldn't be experts on climate change, shouldn't be taking that um, into account. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are. So my thoughts regarding that, I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that she needs to strike a, a delicate balance uh, because of whatever is going on 
around the world now is there's very much of a, a bit of a so-called uh, ESG backlash, uh, where uh, that started in the US, and, and we do hope that it's not going to spread uh, too much. At least in Asia, I don't think it has spread yet. Uh, we are, we see a, a much more momentum around climate action in Asia than than we've seen in the past, and it keeps increasing. So let's hope this this stays a, too, a bit more in the US and clearly in Europe as well. There's there's a lot going on, uh, but uh, I mean basically um, the uh, the climate topic and in general uh, ESG IE, so environmental social governance factors have become a political topic and we don't want this to become a political topic because uh, whatever is happening is, is um, in terms of climate change is, is solidly uh, evidenced by science and uh, we, we need to, to, to work on this uh, and politicians need to work on this by putting in place the, the right strategies and not debating and discussing whether or not the you know climate change is is uh, induced by human activities and and, and stuff like and that. So self-interest groups. Exactly. I mean, that's for sure. So, I mean, all the lobbying going on in the US, uh, the fossil fuel industry uh, and so forth. So I think really, uh, actually, from the IMF uh, stance, um, I don't know exactly in what context this, um, these quotes were, were, uh, were, were made, but I do believe actually the IMF and especially the, the current leadership is actually caring very much about this, these issues. Um, the, these issues are um, global by nature. Uh, but they're also affecting uh, more than anything else, uh, more vulnerable countries, uh, emerging market, frontier markets, a lot of them in, in Southeast Asia, in Asia, a lot of them in Africa. So I, I would definitely you know, like do not think that the IMF would not care. Look at what happened in Pakistan just uh, the summer, was it two summers ago, with these uh, devastating floods that cost uh, the, the country a huge amount of money and the IMF has to, to go in. So. Mm, I mean, and we seem to be seeing though governments sort of starting to water down some of the commitments that they've made uh, to combating climate change. We're seeing that in the UK. Rishi Sunak apparently is going to give a speech today in which he's going to walk back some of their commitments. We have the EU Green Deal, uh, which is designed to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. That seems to be watered down um, as well. And it seems partly coming from populism. People now are starting to realise there is a real cost to doing this and they don't want to pay it. Well, because it's all going to get stuck with higher defense bills, especially mm. if Trump gets in, then it could well be that you will find him pulling very much out of places like NATO and creating more chaos, making the Europeans may f pay more for defense. That sounds to me as an ex-German by tax hikes, and no, no European is going to want that. And if they then say tax hikes for defense and for climate change, but climate change is a bit like education, where we can, that's kind of a, a luxury, not, not a necessity. Mm. Yes, I'm afraid. I, exactly. And then, of course, uh, I think we need to mention what, what, what is called just transition. It's a very important concept, saying that, of course, we need, I mean, again, our economies, our systems need to, to do this transition to lower carbon environments. Uh, but it's, it has a cost. It has a cost. Mm. And, and the ones who are, uh, have to be supported uh, through this, this transition process are, are uh, groups of people and, or countries or regions, for instance, in Europe, where, um, where uh, you have, uh, I mean, people with, with le less money to spend uh, on things which become, for instance, more expensive and need to be supported. Otherwise, we'll have uh, the yellow vest uh, everywhere uh, uh, around the world. So I think this is really important. And, and then the second thing I would wanted to, to um, comment as well a bit on what you said, Peter, regarding the, uh, the Green Deal in Europe. Uh, clearly, 
it's, it's maybe a bit disappointed to see that that uh, it, we're not done yet with all. The, I think there were like around 70 measures that were put into uh, were, were on uh, in the plans, and still many of them are under negotiation. Uh, but these are extremely complex and very ambitious goals, and uh, you know the EU itself is uh, as a body is not known to be sometimes the fastest because there is of course it's it's a democratic process with a lot of things being discussed and decided upon and voted and sometimes voted against. Now we've got, for instance, Poland, which is basically suing the, the Commission for at least three of its climate measures. So, um, And then we have the elections coming up in Europe uh, next uh, June, which means that they both have to try to accelerate this because they really want to get done. They had this very ambitious uh, uh, you know, Green Deal uh, process that uh, Ursula von der Leyen launched in 2019. Uh, but of course, they also need to take into consideration, again, this for instance, topics of just transition because they, they want to be re-elected. It would help, though, wouldn't it, if governments were a bit more honest and upfront about the cost of these transitions because they have shied away from talking about it. And there is a real cost um, and a high cost. And people need to realise that this doesn't come from free. But the, the governments haven't really talked about that cost, have they, so much? I think it's a packaging. It's really more of an investment than a cost because if you don't invest in the city's sinking under the sea level kind of thing, well, then you don't have much of a city and certainly not any inflation because you don't have any growth. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of this is packaging. But I also want to say that I do agree with the central banks in one sense. They should stick with their knitting, but be very cognizant of climate change and be very aware that that's a structural matter that really needs a lot of doing by the fiscal side of the equation. And that's then where the central bank can calibrate its policies with the fiscal policy to come up with a more current economic policy than this antediluvian demand-driven, too much money chasing too few goods, slam on the brakes, whether it's the sun, whether it's palm oil prices in Malaysia, bow weevils in Bolivia, or too much demand, it's all the same thing. Mm, but, but traditionally, central banks and governments haven't been very good, have no, they, at coordinating much, monetary much, and fiscal policy? Too much thinking just in little boxes in my own little turf. Well, while we're on the subject of, of green things and sustainability, let me ask you about electric vehicles and uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announcing last week mm. that they're going to launch an anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese electric vehicles that are distorting the EU market, she says. She says uh, global markets are now flooded uh, with cheaper Chinese electric cars. The, the problem is, though, is that people want to buy them. That's one of the reasons why the market is flooded, if it is flooded uh, with these cars and, and, chi and Chinese manufacturers. Um, are very good at competing on price. Yes, exactly. And now they're very good at competing with innovation. I mean, electric vehicles um, as such have been uh, identified as a so-called strategic emerging industry in China now for many years. Uh, we know how it works uh, here in Hong Kong. I think we do understand uh, the way uh, things happen, uh, are in China better than in many other places around the world. They're very dedicated. They're supporting these uh, champions. Uh, they create demand uh, and they have created uh, really, you know, uh, global leaders, uh, glo I mean, really global champions, which are absolutely uh, uh, fantastic in terms of, as I said, innovation 
productivity uh, and now they're trying to to of course marketing this outside of um, outside of uh, of China but so not very I, profitable I, though are they well well so, uh, the mass, the scale yeah exactly the, the mass sure and the scale and this is exactly you know it's it's not the first it's it's we've seen that in the past with solar panels we've seen that in the past with other industries mm. uh, that's the way the, the Chinese do it and uh, I was not surprised mm. by the by the fact that the uh, uh, by this um, uh, decision by um, by the EU to to look into this because obviously the uh, the automakers in Europe, especially the German automakers, uh, must be right now having nightmares about them uh, losing <laughs> uh, losing on this uh, very important uh, uh, race. Um, uh, what is interesting as well is to realize that again in China things of China is, has gone so far in, already into uh, into uh, EV penetration, uh, but even around the world, five years ago it was only one out of twenty five new cars were electric vehicles. Now it's already one out of five mm. new cars really? being EVs. Absolutely. And, and, and the European manufacturers were late to the game, weren't they? Well, yeah, they were late to, late to the game because I think they kind of considered that, uh, yeah, they would have time when it's really, when the demand is there. The you need to have the infrastructure as well with all the charging stations. And, and there were, you know, there were still a lot of people wanting to buy uh, internal combustion engine cars. What's so. the Chinese market share, Karine? What do you know of, of, uh, of uh, the EVs? Well, of, e- of EVs, oh gosh, I mean, it's... Uh, 60% or something. Yeah, something like that. It's very high. Absolutely, yeah. it's very yeah. high, very high, yeah. Mm. and. and and not only, sorry, and not only the electric vehicles itself, but of course the value chain and now it's the, the batteries. So both CATL and BYD are now by far the two uh, largest uh, um, uh, manufacturers of uh, of uh, batteries for for electric vehicles. And uh, it seems that I mean I'm not saying the race is lost already, but uh, it's going to be really tough for anybody else outside of China. And to that's going to raise them. a lot of unions hackles in Europe, especially. And this gets back to my pet peeve in the world, which is middle class education is not keeping up. That makes Fed policy look modern compared to this antediluvian educational policy. Forget Harvard, Yale, Princeton, I should say, and all that kind of stuff. Um, we're talking more about the, the grade school, junior high school, high school, and that's just not keeping up with, with the times. Anti-diluvian, that's yes. your phrase of the day, isn't yes, it? <laughs> yes. But isn't this, a, could this be self-defeating by the EU? They need people to buy electric vehicles to meet their Green Deal um, targets. The risk is there could be retaliation from the Chinese who, you know, could maybe restrict exports they already are of rare earth metals that are needed to make the batteries um, and things. So in, in the end, I mean, maybe, um, you know, this, this is not going to be a clever move by the EU. Yeah, you know, it's it's the same kind of move that we've seen as well from the US, where they're restricting uh, uh, Chinese uh, solar panel makers. And uh, clearly, uh, it's it's an issue because of this, the, these are solutions that we need for our climate. And now we have uh, we have measures that could actually slow down the uh, the process. I wouldn't expect the Chinese to start. I mean, of course, they're not happy. Then they they mm. will probably mm-hmm. file complaints in the 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 WTO and so forth. Uh, but I wouldn't expect them to uh, to restrict uh, exports of, of EVs uh, because that, that that wouldn't play in their in their cards. Um, you know, but they, they clearly might mm. be able to do other things. But I think eventually, what one, what's going to happen is that they, they maybe you know Europe would be happy the day, and it's happening already that you have, of course, Chinese automakers opening um, and, and setting up factories in Europe and creating jobs. For Europeans. Mm. That has to be the way out because the Chinese whacked Europe on solar panels, I believe, years ago, also undercutting. 
pricing yeah. and really wiped out the European solar panel industry, yes. yeah. I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, and, and it's like, you know, so basically what we also have is this um, interesting thing happening in the world now with the, the US that launched this Inflation Reduction Act. It's, it's the wrong name. Mm. It's, it's a climate bill. It's, it's hail as, of course, as the yes. biggest ever for the US. It's actually what is interesting. Everybody is like uh, completely raving about this, but like actually on, on a yearly basis, China is, that's what basically China is spending, but they don't talk about it as much. Uh, but, but it started already a few years ago. They are spending around uh, $300 billion a year into, into putting money into clean tech and supporting R&D and stuff like that. But in, in, the, um, in the US, they put money, they say like, we'd rather put a lot of carrots and, and less sticks. Whereas in Europe, uh, the way Europeans do that, um, there's a lot of regulations, a lot of bills, and, and they are, they've been, you know, uh, sometimes more mm. like going against the, the polluters instead of just supporting the, the, the solution makers. So, yeah, it's a different approach. Well, we shouldn't underestimate just how much the electric vehicle um, industry in China is, is helping the Chinese economy at the moment. I mean, we saw that, didn't we, last weekend, you know, the industrial production uh, figures mm. rose 4.5% in August uh, from a year ago, better than what uh, economists were forecasting. And, and EV, um, EV manufacturing was a, a decent chunk of that. Indeed. I think you're right. I'm. I'm sure. If, if just, I, I don't have the the numbers at hand anymore. Whether there was perhaps a little bit of a base effect going on here. In other mm. words, the numbers of August two o two two, perhaps were quite low. I don't. I just don't know. We were comparing them when China yeah. was basically in lockdown a Absolute, year ago. Well done. Well done. Absolutely. So that's. Um, but I think the real problem with China, if I can just digress, is not stimulus, is not monetary, is not fiscal. It's this hostile attitude of the central government and the local governments towards private industry, which does account for 80% of employment, 60% of GDP, and things of that sort of magnitude. And this is coming straight from the Study Times, which is the Journal of the Central Party School, after all. This is not me making something up. And I feel that as long as people keep on focusing on China's monetary and fiscal policies, as they're doing yet again, with the cut in the reserve requirements and all that, that is really kind of a little bit fly-by-night stuff that has, again, it doesn't, it's not going to attack the real issue of allowing the private sector to get on with creating jobs, with creating growth, with creating R&D innovation. Mm. Well, we saw that in the figures. Industrial value-added output increased 5.2% year-on-year at state-owned enterprises, but 3.4% year-on-year at private companies. So So presumably from what you're saying is, if the economy is going to grow, that growth also has to spread out into private companies. It can't just be state-owned enterprises. I, I completely fully agree with NCO. I think this 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 is a, a major issue that also has another impact on what I believe is maybe the most fundamental problem now is that, I mean, China has gone from being investment-driven to being they want to be more consumer-driven. Consumption-driven growth is fantastic as long as people are very hopeful and, and happy to consume. Uh, to start with, Chinese have never been like big spenders. Uh, they, like, they like savings, and we know why, because they want to make sure as well that they have a safer maybe future, and if anything happens in the health and everything, so there's a lot of capital preservation patterns here. But I think at this stage, I mean, following... Uh, 
what happened, uh, which is I mean, national traumatic experience of going through these COVID times. People, I mean, initially there was some revenge consumption, as they call it, but it has been slower than, than people were expecting. Also because, mind you, actually Chinese did not, like many people around the world, including the Americans, get like vouchers to go spend whatever they had, uh, you know, wanted to, to buy because uh, it just did not happen. And um, it is harder, much more hard, much harder to make people feel confident and yes. go spending than deciding on, you know, building highways and bridges. Yes. And uh, so, so this is this is the issue. And there, of course, and the question about the mood and the sentiment of Chinese consumers uh, is is uh, really, really important it's and crucial. Security, yeah. It is a confidence issue, isn't it? Absolutely. And particularly when you see house prices, for example, going down, mm, which is not yes. something Chinese people are used yes, to seeing yes, yeah. at all. It badly damages confidence and price anywhere confidence. In world, anywhere in the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and even more so in China, of course, yeah. because there's a huge amount of their, it's very important yes. for them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which sort of suggests then that this stimulus that we're seeing or that investors and markets are calling for more stimulus is a little bit misguided. It's not going to be the right solution. And you also sort of get the impression that Beijing probably realizes that as well, because it's all been pretty piecemeal so far, hasn't it? Well, I, I wish you were right, but I, my own somewhat cynical reading is that um, the leadership in Beijing does not want to get it. Um, it's very fi fixated, again, according to these study times of the, of the party, it's so fixated on its party ideology that that kind of trumps everything. Mm. And that's my concern. Um, we do get back to the mandate of heaven that goes back to the legalistic time pre-Christ in China, where if you don't create the jobs, you don't stay in office, basically. I'm not say, saying that because I'm, I'm not qualified. I don't even speak the language. But I'm just saying that the business of employment creation, tax revenue collection, um, innovation is all private sector. Until you get that private sector going again and confident, what Karen was saying, Karina was saying in a different context, um, you're not going to find growth in China. It's just a no-buy. Mm. At the same time, of course, let's not forget as well that, I mean, everybody knew that China could not go on growing with 10% a year right. forever. I mean, not because of its sheer size. And uh, we just need to, to and investors mm. and, and need to understand that that this is a new era. Uh, there is, um, but, but it's not like the Chinese economy slows down. It doesn't mean it slows down everywhere. That's where Absolutely. we see innovation in some sectors. And of course, again, with the, the state support model that has been sometimes, uh, sometimes very helpful, sometimes much less helpful, mm. uh, creating mm. some, some as well, some imbalances. Uh, but I mean, so for investors in general, I mean, it does not mean that you should not look into China because, uh, and, and in general in, into emerging markets, because uh, that's still where you find uh, much higher growth also, compared yeah. to uh, developed markets. Okay, well, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion this morning. Great to see you both. You heard there Corinne Hearn, who is Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group, and Enzio von Fahl, who is Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Rushir Desai, who is fund manager at Asia Frontier Capital. Morning, Rushir. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Vietnam, country very much in focus at the moment following President Biden's um, visit there. Also, uh, the establishment um, of this comprehensive strategic partnership that the US announced with Vietnam. Give us a sense of what this is and how important it is to, uh, to Vietnam and also to the US as well. 
Well, actually, taking a step back, given what's going on globally in geopolitics, especially between China and the U.S. over the last few years, uh, with the intensity picking up in the last uh, year or so after the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, the strategic competition between both the countries have obviously picked up, especially in Asia. So what we've seen uh, in the last probably couple of quarters or few months uh, from the U.S. is they're, they're trying to build up further presence or further partnerships in, in Asia. So actually before the pres- U.S. president went to Vietnam a couple of weeks ago, he was actually in India for the G20 and obviously met the Prime Minister of India. So obviously in the last few years, there have been uh, clear indications from the U.S. that they want to build up closer partnerships and relationships with important countries in the region uh, and Vietnam being one of them. Uh, so just a bit of background about this. So Vietnam and U.S. obviously have very close trade relations for the past probably de- few decades or so. And uh, I think this visit by the U.S. president to Vietnam was an important indication, both from the U.S. side as well as from the Vietnam from Vietnam side as well. So for the U.S., obviously it shows to other countries in the region and also to China that they want to be have close relations with uh, you know Vietnam and other Asian countries, both economically and strategically and also geopolitically more importantly. And also from Vietnam's angle, uh, they have close relations with China because China is the biggest trading partner. They have close relations with other Asian countries as well, but they obviously also want to send a message to other regional powers that they have, you know, some of the Western countries who are backing them both both geopolitically and also uh, economically. And that's why the U.S. visit was very important from Vietnam's point of view. Mm-hmm. So Vietnam has various kind of levels of diplomatic uh, relationships with various countries, the highest being the comprehensive strategic partnership. And only four countries had this relationship with Vietnam before the U.S. was uh, presented with this partnership. So it was China, India, South Korea and Russia. So the fifth country to have this relationship with Vietnam is the US. So clearly Vietnam is sending a very strong message uh, to countries in the region that they have US as a strong partner going forward, both mm-hmm. geopolitically and also economically. So that's why I think this this uh, this visit by the US president was very important. So, But we should be clear, this isn't replacing the partnership with China, that it still has that comprehensive strategic partnership with China. And that's still going to be a very important economic and trading partner, isn't it, for Vietnam? Absolutely. So the Vietnam obviously is hedging their strategies going forward. Uh, China is a very important trading partner, like I mentioned. It's the biggest trading partner for Vietnam. Uh, and, and I don't think this is any way or any kind of indication or signal from Vietnam they're trying to kind of pivot towards the West or the US. Absolutely not. Uh, Vietnam is very much involved in the global supply chain shift that's happening. They need China. They, they import a lot of goods from China, which are then re-exported to other countries. So clearly, it's not an indication from Vietnam they want to pivot away from uh, some of the Asian countries and move towards the West. That, uh, that's clearly not that clearly not going to happen because uh, if you look at just in general, their diplomatic strategy is more, more, more balanced and more well-rounded and they want to have good relations with all the important regions globally, I would say. But um, has there been any negative reaction at all from China to this comprehensive strategic partnership? Uh, so far, there's not been any negative reaction. I, and I doubt there'll be any major negative reaction because I think this uh, upgrade in relationships between the US and Vietnam in terms of the comprehensive strategic partnership was well publicized before even the president or the US president visit Vietnam. So it was well publicized in the media. It was very much spoken about that they're going to have close economic relations. Uh, and I think I think most countries also understand that the US is Vietnam's biggest export market. So they, they need to have good relations and even close relations with the US. So I don't see any negative indication from China from this relationship. Uh, and I, like I mentioned, Vietnam already has a comprehensive strategic partnership with China as well. So I think it's pretty balanced at this point in time. And what is this going to do for Vietnam's exports to the US? You say it's already their biggest trading um, sort of partnership. Is it going to provide a lot of growth for Vietnam, a lot of potential? Yes, absolutely. So a couple of points over here. So one, like I mentioned, 
the us's biggest uh, the us's vietnam's biggest export market they've been an important trading partner for vietnam especially the past decade or so so you the us accounts for about 25% of vietnam's exports uh, but the key is what's happened over the last probably 4 or 5 years you know the tensions between the us both geopolitically and also in terms of trade have begun the last probably 4 or 5 years since 2018 and since then vietnam's exports to us have just skyrocketed for example vietnam's exports to the us in 2017 were about 42 billion dollars and at the end of last year in 2022 they almost 110 billion dollars so almost th- they almost grown by three times that's significant and this growth has come come across from across products it's not just garments or footwear which was the staple vietnam exports probably 10 years ago it's across the board it's mobile phones it's consumer electronics it's furniture it's it's uh, seafood uh, and of course footwear and garments as well so it's across the board and that's and the main reason for this is obviously like i mentioned the tensions between us and china which has led a lot of manufacturing activity move from mainland china into vietnam especially in the manufacturing sector and that's how you've seen many global companies could be you know south korean japanese american as well as of course chinese these companies have moved production to vietnam because they want to have pay less tariffs in the us and also hedge themselves in terms of in terms of uh, supply chain risk and you've seen this massive shift of production moving into vietnam which has benefited the exports especially the us and that's why i think this trip from the us president to vietnam is very important because one obviously it will lead to a greater diversification of supply chains because that's obviously what us is pushing in terms of supply chain hedging or supply chain risk management and you will see more and more probably multinational companies especially us companies moving to move the manufacturing into vietnam so for example apple wants to de-risk the supply chains you're going to see more probably apple products uh, being uh, assembled in vietnam but more importantly just a quick point over here it's not just about what vietnam has already been doing it's where vietnam can go from this partnership so vietnam obviously with this partner with this visit from the us president is will probably move the value chain in terms of their production capacity so us also wants to de-risk their semiconductor/technology the supply chain and i think they've basically selected or chosen vietnam in terms of their partner in helping them diversify the supply chain for de- for semiconductor so vietnam will probably become a very important partner for the us in the semiconductor and technology industry so you think vietnam could develop its own te- uh, semiconductor industry like uh, you know some other countries in the region have this is where it's heading to absolutely i think obviously not it'll, it'll take some time but clearly they've got the right they've got the right idea in mind so already for example intel has for example some capacity in vietnam in terms of design and uh, production capacity in vietnam but i think what this what this visit from the us president does is it clearly shows a lot of momentum for us companies to invest in vietnam and help them train their human capital for this because this is a more high end manufacturing capacity it's not just your basic round the mill garments or footwear or assembly of mobile phones you need probably more better train human capital which are more productive and therefore the us will help vietnam in terms of training their human capital in terms of building up the semiconductor capacity both in terms of human resources and also of, of course in terms of production capacity so, so i think so our semi our us semiconductor companies are they like like nvidia and others and um, intel are they moving to vietnam investing in vietnam opening plants there training local people Yeah I mean in the last couple of weeks since the visit of the US president there've been various kind of agreements slash indications that companies like Nvidia and Marvel Technologies will help 
you know local companies in vietnam to set up design studios help with you know training their training their engineers and building up this human human, uh, human resource capacity so clearly they're moving in that direction and even some of the south korean companies for example which are also strong in semiconductors have also decided to help vietnam and put up capacity in vietnam and help them b- build up that value chain so mm-hmm. clearly it's a very strong uh, indication for vietnam and i think from from that from 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 this from the other perspective it's also will also help vietnam not just in terms of improving the human capital but also in terms of moving up the value chain in terms of their export manufacturing capability and also their productivity and that that is what will lead to quality economic growth going forward and also higher disposable income so it's vietnam can probably move up the value chain you know not just in terms of exports but also in general broader economic growth one of the things that makes china good at manufacturing in that particular sector is it's got all the natural resources it's got a lot of rare earths that are needed to make the batteries and things for electric vehicles and the components for semiconductors what about vietnam does it have uh, those natural resources that's a good point actually and that's also one of the reasons why us wants to build a, build a closer relationship with vietnam in fact vietnam has got one of the highest reserves of rare earths globally but obviously you know with lack of capital or probably lack of uh, incentives or commitment from the government they've not really explored those rare earths and that's one more reason why you know vietnam is going to be an important partner for the us because many of these rare earths are used for you know smartphones or all the semiconductor industry or in general in the in the technology industry or the high tech industry and therefore vietnam uh, will be helped by the us and also us capital and the us government to probably explore these rare earths and become an important you know part of the uh, you know high tech a manufacturing uh, supply chain and therefore i think that's also a very important point for vietnam well, how's it going what's this going to do for the economy because the vietnam economy is slowing isn't it it had a good year in 2022 it expanded about 8% but that growth now um has slowed quite considerably i think it was about 3 just over 3% 3.3% um in the first quarter and also exports um are declining as well now on a year on year basis what's this all going to do for the vietnamese economy yeah i mean if you just look at broadly the economy of vietnam the country is very trade dependent right it's a very trade based economy which is obviously very good because it helps you build your ex- exports and also therefore your economy and in general disposable income levels for the population but of course the downsides are if the global economy slows in a biggest export markets for example the us and and also eu slow down then your exports will take a hit so this year's exports are down by about 10% gdp growth in the first half of the year was about 3.3 to 3.4% as you mentioned uh but i think that's probably just a cyclical factor i don't think it's a structural issue because vietnam before 2000 before this year was doing close to 6 to 7% gdp growth on an average over the last four or five years uh, so it's 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 quite possible out it's quite realistic actually for them to recover to about 6% gdp growth or even greater going forward as exports recovers uh, the foreign direct investments are still coming in for uh, especially because of the supply chain shift happening uh, and benefiting vietnam so that's going to help their uh, overall economic growth rebound next year uh, but more broadly i think with 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 vietnam moving up the value chain possibly i'm not saying it's a short term thing but i'll say in the next 5 or 10 years then you would see their their value of exports or the quality of exports also improving in terms of the kind of exports they're doing so that's how even many of the east asian economies including china that's how they developed their export sector they started off doing lower end exports mm-hmm. lower end manufacturing and the move the value chain they're doing more high tech stuff now and similarly vietnam is going the same tra- tra- trajectory so then they're on the right path so i think from a economic perspective it's very positive broadly because it'll help them improve their human capital improve the quality of their exports and more importantly improve productivity and this and that's that's key in probably economic growth because if you once you get your labor to be more productive you get them to obviously have better output 
and this leads to greater disposable income, greater economic growth, and in general, good for the whole economy. Rushia, thanks very much indeed. Great to talk to you again this morning. That's Rushia Desai, who is fund manager at Asia Frontier Capital. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, which is where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. Tomorrow is Fed Day. I'll have all the details of the FOMC decision. And joining me to discuss it will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Fruman-Millen, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. With a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.